0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week.
1: Take the quiz
2: every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox.
3: Now from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson show with Guy Benson.
0: It is Thursday, July 21st, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is my show, The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Every weekday, 3 until 6 p.m. Eastern time and around the clock on our free podcast, on demand, free of charge, totally, totally easy. And, I mean, it doesn't get better than $0.00 from your perspective. GuyBensonShow.com foxnewspodcast.com, wherever you get your podcast, you've got all sorts of options for that. We, of course, recommend listening live every day as we air across our great affiliates on the Fox News app, the live stream, Fox Nation. You have many options. Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. We have partners. You have options. At Guy Benson Show is our Twitter and Instagram handle. If you want to follow us, we have additional content there on a regular basis at Guy Benson Show. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I typically write one to two pieces a day there. I'm also a Fox News contributor on the TV side in addition to my radio duties right here. Here's the lineup as we get going today. Josh Holmes, longtime McConnell aide, political operative, ruthless podcast host. He will be here later on this hour. Martha McCallum in studio. She's hosting her show from D.C. today. She will join us here just in that chair. I'm. Gesturing right now if you're watching on the live stream. Looking forward to having Martha here in DC here in studio in our next hour. And in our final hour, just after five PM Eastern, Miranda Devine. Some updates on the Hunter Biden investigation, rumors of potential indictments. We will ask her about that and more. Plus, something that we did here on the program yesterday sparked a little bit of a debate and then a thought, and we realized, you know what, we should take some calls on this. So later on in the show, we will be Talking to some of you, if you want to write down our toll-free telephone number in advance, we will bring it to you, of course, again a bit later on. It's 833-456-1300, your connection here to the show, 833-456-1300. That conversation, that topic will be here eh, about an hour and a half from now, and we will uh, prime the pump, so to speak, in our middle hour. We begin with a Fox News alert here on The Guy Benson Show. President Joe Biden has tested positive for COVID. That emerged earlier today. The White House says that he is in good spirits and in good health. Very mild symptoms, just a bit of a cough, a little bit of like sniffles and some fatigue. White House saying that he started to get some of those mild symptoms last evening, but he is working in isolation. And earlier today, the first lady Acknowledged that her husband has COVID and cut 20.
1: My husband tested positive for COVID. I talked to him just a few minutes ago. He's doing fine. He's feeling good. Uh, I tested negative this morning. I am going to keep my schedule. I am, according to CDC guidelines, I am keeping masks.
0: Okay. So that's Jill Biden. And then Joe Biden, the president, just this afternoon, released a very short video of himself at the White House just telling people, yes, he has COVID. I will say he looks good. He does not look like he is terribly unwell at all. And here's what he said to the country in Cut 31. Hey,
3: folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for COVID. But I've been double vaccinated, double boosted. Symptoms are mild. And uh and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns. But I'm doing well. I'm getting a lot of work done. I'm going to continue to get it done. And, uh, and in the meantime, thanks for your concern. And keep the faith. It's going to be okay.
0: Yeah, He sounds fine. About as well as he ever does sound, right? And we, of course, here hope that he has a very easy and speedy recovery. He is quadruple vaxxed, right? Two shots, two boosters, just... Vaxed up the wazoo, so I think that's good. That can be helpful here. Of course, he said a year ago. This is a little flashback in cut thirty. This is actually cut twenty-three. My mistake. Listen to President Biden a year ago.
4: You're okay. You're not going to. You're not going to get COVID if
3: you have these vaccinations. Yeah.
0: So that wasn't true at the time. He was fact checked at the time for saying something that was clearly not the case. Because breakthrough cases started to become pretty prominent and prevalent last summer. I had my breakthrough case having been double vaxxed in August. And for him to say last July that if you're vaccinated, you're not going to get COVID, it just immediately a bunch of doctors said, nope, that's wrong. There are benefits to being vaccinated, no question about that. Much lower likelihood of hospitalization in terms of, you know, on a proportional basis, much less likely to have a very severe case of COVID or to die. Those are very good reasons to get vaccinated. But just getting the vaccine won't prevent you from getting COVID, as many of us have learned, in some cases, multiple times. I have multiple friends who have at least three shots who also have had COVID twice. So that was a little bit of misinformation spread by the president last summer. He, to our knowledge, up to just now, just today or last night, had not contracted COVID. Fauci had a long run as well, not getting COVID. Then he got it a couple weeks ago. Fauci did. Now the president has it also. Now, I don't want to be too breezy about it because he is 79 years old with some maybe comorbidities beyond just his age. But we wish him the best. It sounds like he's doing well. The symptoms are mild, and we hope that they remain mild, mild and they just go away. Easy glide path here. And that's what we're hoping for and praying for for the president of the United States. Now, at the press conference earlier today in the White House briefing room. Corrine Jean-Pierre was asked a question. I thought her answer was kind of interesting here in cut 32. Listen, where, exactly was, the president
5: infected? where was he infected? I, I don't think we know. Yeah. Um, I certainly don't know if you you have any thoughts on it. Look, I I don't think
1: that that matters, right? I think what matters is we prepared for this moment. I think what matters uh, is what Dr. Jha just laid out. Uh, If we look at where we were, were a year and a half ago, this is a president, when he walked in, one of his first priorities was to make sure we had a comprehensive plan to get people vaccinated.
0: Okay, so she starts going on to the talking points about the administration's COVID response. She said it doesn't matter where he contracted COVID. I mean, it might because he's had close contact with a number of high government officials, including senators and members of Congress, you know, and others. President meets a lot of people. He was shaking hands just yesterday. So just as a matter of contract or contact tracing and giving people a heads up, that's I mean, maybe it matters. But I think ultimately she's right that. The exact location where he got it and when and from whom is probably unknowable and doesn't ultimately matter that much. And I think for us to focus or freak out too much about this, it was inevitable that Joe Biden was going to get COVID at some point because everyone is going to get COVID at some point, quite likely multiple times. And because we now have a bunch of treatments in addition to the vaccines, and we heard from the White House that one of them the president has taken, and that will hopefully reduce the severity of symptoms even further, there are ways to handle this now. And a lot of that was developed over the course of the previous administration, including those vaccines, of course, and some of the therapeutics as well. But this was sort of like huge news all over the place. Oh, my goodness, the president, you know, sound the sirens Flash the red lights. President Biden has COVID. I think it's going to be just fine. Keep an eye on it. He's the president. It's a significant virus. He's in a danger zone in terms of age, but he's going to have the very best care in the world, as he should. And a lot of people know that they can have COVID, have some unpleasantness, some discomfort for a while and then move on. And, of course, for others, it it has been significantly worse than that. And it sounds like that is not the case for the president. And as I've said now a few times, uh, we very much hope that that remains the case here and that he fully recovers in very short order. Now, he did also say something yesterday about a very different, much more serious disease, cancer, in his visit to Massachusetts. We played the soundbite yesterday. We'll play it again here real quick. Cut 14.
3: And guess what? The first frost, you know what was happening? It had to put on their windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. And why I can't for the longest time Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation?
0: So we played that. We were somewhat perplexed by that. The White House immediately said, no, no, the president does not have cancer. He's a healthy 79-year-old, cancer-free. But The president said that he has cancer in that clip along with many of the other people that he grew up with. And I guess the spin or the direction they decided to go was to point out that he had some non-melanoma skin cancer or like uh, moles removed a number of years ago. And a lot of people said, oh, okay. See, so he he did have that. And so he didn't misspeak. And all these critics and these conservatives are, uh, boy, do they have egg on their face. We showed them, and as I said briefly on the show yesterday, it just didn't really quite make sense to me because I've actually had a few things removed, a few moles. This is an issue in my family. Melanoma itself has been an issue in my family, so we're kind of on the lookout for it. I try to be careful, and I know that it has to do with being out in the sun, like spending – getting too much sunlight, too much exposure to sunlight that – causes the problem. That's a huge driver of it, which is why we slather on the high SPF stuff. I don't go in the sun for long periods of time. Other people in my family really avoid it even more significantly because they've had uh, you know, more frightening encounters and, and scares on this front. I don't know what any of that has to do with at the first frost, turning on the windshield wipers of your car because there's an oil slick on the window which is the context that he was describing. I don't know what that has to do with skin cancer. My guess, again, just an educated guess. I could be wrong. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the radio. My guess is Biden weirdly said this thing about having cancer. And I would add, when I've had something removed off of my back, I had two things removed. This was years ago. I did not go around telling people that I had cancer. I didn't have cancer. Thank God. The whole point of having precancerous or scary-looking, problematic-looking moles removed is to avoid cancer. So I wouldn't describe that as having cancer. It kind of seems like maybe that's what he did here. Regardless, because he said the word, rather than just saying the president misspoke, they decided to backfill some kind of an excuse. Oh, well, here was something involving cancer that might have been a cancer scare from years ago. So let's use that as the thing to, quote, unquote, prove that he wasn't just misfiring or doing the thing that he does regularly. It's something Joe Biden has done for many years, which is to try to insert himself into anything and draw some sort of personal connection, even if it's not true, where he either totally fabricates a story or massively embellishes what happened so he can relate to something on a personal level. And it's not just something he understands, but he knows because it's happened to him or whatever. We actually did a monologue. It's on YouTube and on the podcast archive, what, a month or two ago, where I ran through all of these, or maybe not all of them, but a lot of those examples. It's a weird tick that he has. I wrote about it also at townhall.com. I think this might have been another one where he's like, oh, all these people have cancer. So do I. And the White House is like, oh, see, here's here's the thing. Actually, a few years ago, a few years back, he had these things removed off of his skin. So, see, like, yeah, I, I don't see, again, the connection between that and the oil slick on the window at first frost and your windshield wipers. Sorry, that just doesn't make sense to me. But a ton of people in the media were like, oh, OK, QED, Mike drop, nailed him. What do you say about that, right-wingers? It's like, well, it seems like a non sequitur to me. And speaking of backfilled excuses and refusing to take the L ever, we've been teasing AOC and some of the members of the squad for their sort of fake handcuff moment when they got arrested on purpose outside the Supreme Court. Well, AOC is now saying – Pretending to be handcuffed is actually the right thing to do. Basically, follow the science of getting arrested is what she's trying to say. And it's ridiculous. We'll tell you the spin that she's trying to pull and a few people pushing back who might know a thing or two about this more than she does when we return on The Guy Benson Show.
3: The Guy Benson Show. More next from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com.
0: I'm Guy Benson, and we've been mocking AOC and Ilhan Omar and others who intentionally got arrested at their Supreme Court protests where they were blocking access. That's why they got arrested. It was the plan. They were doing some pro-abortion whatever activism. And it turns out, according to the Washington Examiner, they coordinated this stunt with a Soros-funded dark money group that sent a camera crew to capture the stunt. And AOC insisted that this was not a publicity stunt. Of course it was. That's the whole point. She was grinning like an idiot. She was so thrilled to be arrested. That was the goal. And she said that the purpose when they showed up was to get arrested. Literally a publicity stunt. Being filmed by a dark money group funded by Soros, which is just kind of perfect. And, of course – Part of the optics that they wanted to convey was the arrest, which is why they were walking hands behind their back like they were cuffed and they weren't different camera angles show that there were no handcuffs. So Nancy Mace, a Republican from South Carolina, she tweeted about this. Politics has become performance art, she wrote. So, of course, AOC fakes being in handcuffs. Performance, not policy, is the name of the game up here. And AOC will never take the L, even when she just should. She says, no faking here. Putting your hands behind your back is a best practice while detained, handcuffed or not, to avoid escalating charges like resisting arrest. The idea that AOC was going to escalate anything or that she was going to be in danger from the police, from the Capitol Police. Come on. She wanted to make it look like she had her hands behind her back and was being walked away, frog marched away. In handcuffs, because that's the visual that she wanted. But she says, no, it's not not faking. It was a best practice. So a bunch of people started responding to that, saying that's nonsense on stilts. A woman named Betsy Bratner Smith is a longtime police officer. She trains police and she responds. Actually, police officers prefer you to have your hands visible where we can see them. He says, just another reason why you shouldn't elect an Instagram influencer to be your representative. Like, you've heard that before, haven't you? Hands where we can see them, not behind your back doing God knows what. In fact, a few people pointed out that the ACLU, their own guide, because they have one, I guess, online, to reduce risk during an encounter with police, stay calm, don't run or resist, keep your hands where the police can see them. AOC says, oh, no, no faking. I just, it's a best practice, have it back there. But then, of course, she lifted the power fist up. Like, she forgot that she was play acting for about a second. uh, Ilhan Omar did the same thing. Up comes the power fist to people cheering them on during the publicity stunt. I don't know where the cameras were, the camera crew. I'm sure that'll be in some documentary one of these days. And then back down it came. She was pretending. It's part of a a publicity stunt. It's what she does. It's the Guy Benson Show. Josh Holmes coming up.
3: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day. And with us now, once again, Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry, LLC. He worked for Mitch McConnell on the campaign and Senate side over multiple years. Big McConnell guy. Also co-host of the Ruthless podcast. And Josh, welcome back. Hey, Guy. What's up, man? Well, I want to ask you, and I, we don't want to, have to like spend a ton of time here on like a feud between two other podcasts because of, we, of course, recommend our podcast here at GuyBensonShow.com. But we also endorse the Ruthless podcast, and you guys have a bit of a back and forth from time to time with the – what is it? Uh, the pod bros over there from the Obama administration. Yeah. They When they were out of office, they put together – Uh, You know, a podcast and it grew in popularity and because their libs, HBO threw money at them or whatever. And I've never listened to their show. It seems like kind of like group therapy for liberals, kind of like all the late night comedy shows are as well. But they take pot shots at you guys sometimes, I guess. And on today's new episode of Ruthless, you guys are firing back. What happened here? Briefly.
4: Well, just to summarize, the pod bros are, uh, basically four white guys taking credit for the first black president, right? That's like basically the solid substance of their, of their programming over there. But, uh, you know, they're just, you know, they're bros, they hang out. Um, but occasionally I, for whatever reason, I'm on their radar where they, they, they have something where they just want to continue to be irked by my mere presence and, uh, Smug got a hold of this at some point in the last day or so. And it, this it, is Comfortably
0: it sort of- Smug, your, your co-host on Ruthless. And by the way, it's an honor. If they're irked by you and they have a weird obsession with you, that's kind of great. I'm glad that you're yeah. under their skin.
5: <laughs>
4: I don't know how it happened, honestly, but, you know, I guess just as well. But they really stuck a quarter in Smug's back. So, yeah, he spent a, a substantial portion of our program today talking about the uh, <laughs> merits or demerits of the pod bros.
0: Well, people should check that out rather than the pod bros listen to the far better product, the far more enlightened product, the much funnier product, the Ruthless podcast. After they listen, of course, daily here to the Guy Benson Show podcast, should they miss our program as it airs live from coast to coast. Josh, I want to ask you. And first of all, I'm sure you've seen the news about President Biden. He's got covid. We've wished him all the best. Sounds like he's doing well. Very mild. That's great. The political situation surrounding this president, not looking at 2022, which we'll get to, but 2024, they are now just shouting from the rooftops on the left that they want him gone. The polling shows that they don't want him to run again. There's a new poll today out of Iowa, which is just dreadful. He's got a 27 percent approval rating in Iowa. Uh, Most say they don't want him to run. New York Times poll had almost two thirds of Democrats saying they don't want the president to run again. I have believed for a while that he's not really capable of going for it a second time. He can't do a basement strategy again. It won't work that way. He's not what he even was a few years ago. I don't think he's going to run, but he keeps saying he's going to. He's the type of guy who might get annoyed enough by people telling him he can't or shouldn't do it, that he just decides out of spite to run anyway, even if he kind of deep down understands maybe it's for the best for him to step aside and, and, Pass the baton. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. No crystal ball here. But if he decides that he does want to run or if he decides he's not going to run and Kamala Harris instead is going to represent the Biden legacy and run for president instead, I think there are a lot of people on the left who are delusional and kidding themselves that it's some sort of easy play to dislodge an incumbent president. From a reelection bid or to just skip over a sitting vice president if she's going to be next up in line, especially as a woman of color in a party that is positively obsessed with identity. I see a lot of the wish casting about, you know, Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg or Gavin Newsom or fill in the blank. I just think people are vastly underestimating the difficulty of moving past some people who have the gigs right now.
4: No, no question about it. I mean, there is some unprecedented stuff here, though. You know, I mean, you mentioned how absurd it would be to just sort of bypass. And in his second year, by the way, everybody's talking about how they don't want him to run within the Democratic Party. But we're like we're three
0: plus months away from the midterms. (laughs) Right. I mean, you think you think maybe this stuff would start like November 9th or November 10th or something? They could wait till after Thanksgiving. But no, it is june july of 2020 that this is ramping up
4: totally well in, in in part it's the obvious physical limitations of this president and i mean look you, you don't have to be insensitive to that kind of thing you just make observations about reality this this guy is not at the top of his game he certainly isn't what he was even when he started running for president that is what it is but i also think it speaks to the failed strategy that he had with this administration right from the very beginning right they set expectations and followed a progressive playbook that was basically indistinguishable from Bernie Sanders. Right. And so when you march out that way and you're pretending like everything in your administration is going to be a new deal, remember all those articles that were like, you know, Biden wants to be the new Roosevelt, he basically wants a, a, a new deal for the 21st century. Well, <clears throat> the problem that he's got is that none of that stuff was obtainable. Right, I mean, he was dealing with a, a divided country. Most people voted for him because they thought he would send Social Security checks on time and not much else. But but nobody signed up for this far left deal. So consequently, everybody who didn't sign up for that is pissed. But then all of the base that he's promised all of this to, you know, unbeknownst to them, that they actually can't pass any of this stuff, are angry that he hasn't gotten it done. So I mean, look, yes. he, he he created this box for himself. And it's even far outside of his own physical limitations to execute it.
0: Yeah, and sometimes people will say that winning both of those special runoff elections, one of them was a special, one of them was regularly scheduled. But the two runoffs in Georgia, for those two Senate seats where the Democrats swept on January 5th of 2021, terrible news for the country overall, in my opinion. But what some observers have said a couple different times now is that was one of the worst things ultimately, in retrospect, That could have happened to Biden because he was getting ready to kind of be the moderate guy with maybe at least a partially Republican Congress. And so they were going to have to compromise and they could blame some stuff on the Republicans. And then they got to 50 plus one in the Senate and they had unified control and the mindset shifted into this FDR 2.0 thing, delusions of grandeur, mission creep. And they decided let's start promising the moon and the stars to everyone. They have failed to follow through on so much of that. Thank goodness, uh, from my perspective, and I know yours as well. But the expectations management just went out the door. And now here we are with a really angry Democratic base, a frustrated left wing base, and the rest of the country basically horrified at how much they already have done, (laughs) uh, which are kind of incompatible. And that brings me to my next question, Josh. When you look at some of the polling ahead of 22, so the more immediate task of the midterm elections. The Democrats have gained some ground on the generic ballot. Usually they lead on the generic ballot. The fact that they are tied or trailing is, is very bad news for them. Republicans still have a slight lead in the average. There was a new poll from the New York Times last week that had the R's plus one on the generic ballot, but Liam Donovan, who's a really smart GOP operative, he points out yesterday that the largest demographic pool of undecideds are white, no college voters as 23 percent of them undecided. And they have been heavily shifting rightward in recent years, heavily Republican in terms of the way that they've landed in their voting patterns. And among undecideds overall, Joe Biden in that poll has a 23 percent approval rating. And there's a new poll out today commissioned by AARP of the Almost 60 biggest battleground districts in the House all across the country, Republicans plus four on the generic ballot in those districts on average, which Biden, on average, won by six points in 2020. So I see some of the individual races statewide that are looking very close or that the Democrats might be leading right now. I see the Democrats Maybe making some gains overall in the generic ballot, pulling into a tie, a slight lead in some of the polls, a slight deficit in others. But then you look at some of the data that I just ran through for you about the undecideds, about Biden's approval rating. And I still feel like all the fundamentals here are pointing in the direction of a red wave of some size, some magnitude. You're a political professional. You've been at it a long time. What are you seeing? How are you thinking about this?
4: Yeah, let me put my political consulting hat on for a second. So, one of the things that you look at in recent history in midterm elections is at some point the electorate is fairly likely to break, but, they, but it almost always breaks late, right? In presidential elections, people engaged much earlier; it stagnates, and it, and it you know you sort of know going into the election, you know, within a couple of points where things are headed, in in. These midterms, they have a tendency of breaking later because voters are tuning in later, and they almost always shift towards the environment itself, right? So, like, if you look back at, like, a 2014, for example, you had a whole bunch of super tight Senate races. They were, like, neck and neck, Democrats up one, Republicans up one. But the environment itself had sunk to the point where Obama was, you know, 40 percent approval, shall we say, something like that. And the right track, wrong track in terms of the direction of the country that people thought things were not going well. That kind of took hold the first week of October. And what happened in all those races is that those ballot questions, the, the person who's running against the other person, that's what we call the ballot question, they all of a sudden began to reflect the overall uh, environment. Right. And I, this happened in 18, happened in 14, happened in 10. Well, so I, I will I say, though, Josh, this. just
0: to just to jump in, though, in 2014, the Republicans just cleaned up on the Senate side. They netted nine seats, if memory serves, which is just a huge number in one cycle. But in 2010, which was a really big wave year for the Republicans in the House, they didn't really do what they could have done. In the Senate, because there were some bad candidates who ended up losing despite the bad environment Uh, in some ways, a worse environment. In 2010, the Democrats held on to a couple of those seats because of bad Republican candidates. I think that's what has some conservatives nervous about this cycle. It'll be a good Republican year. But will it be a great Republican year based on some of the people who are running that aren't necessarily top shelf recruits? What do you think about that?
4: Yeah, well, I gave you the silver lining side of it. The downside is what you just said, right? I think there are an awful lot, particularly on the Senate side. I think the House candidates actually this cycle are incredibly impressive. But particularly on the Senate side, there are a lot of campaigns here that don't fully have it together, right? Whether it's financial or whether it's message discipline or whether it's just a whole host of things, uh, they don't fully have their act together, and we saw, as you mentioned, in 2010 happened again in 2012. Guy, I mean, the, you yeah. know, Todd Aiken and Richard Murdoch, and I mean, it was it was terrible. Sharon Angle um, and
0: Christine O'Donnell. You can name some of them through the years. Seats that and should have been won. That's,
4: yeah, that's the thing with statewide races. They're not they're not entirely environmental. They're shaped by a, a ton of environment, but ultimately, you need a candidate that represents the state in order to win. And um I think we can get there and I there's an awful lot of campaigns that have the capacity of being good campaigns, but they're not quite there yet.
0: I do want to on the fundraising numbers and we had Rick Scott on the show this week and he just said flat out the Republicans need to be able to raise more money. They are wheezing in that category. And there's some, you know, candidates doing well. You've got the committees doing quite well, but not really well enough to make up for this avalanche of cash on the left. The Democrats are the big money in politics party now. That's just the reality. They pretend to hate big money in politics. They love it. They love their own, certainly. But one of the fun things about it is you have this weird compulsion, almost an addiction, within a certain species of leftist, like the resistance, bandwagon, hyper online people who seem to just be very eager to light money on fire, whether it's sending – ungodly sums of money to Jamie Harrison in South Carolina or Amy McGrath against your boss only to get blown out in Kentucky this year. The numbers might be closer, but the amount of money is just staggering that they're sending to Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams. It's like mountains of cash that will likely again result in losses. I mean, I guess I don't want to stop them. It's like, go for it, guys. I'd rather them send money to those people than other places where it might actually matter more.
4: Yeah, you know, it, it's totally true. I mean, it, that's the environment that we live in, right? It's like an angry donation. An angry donation is worth like five times what a just a regular <laughs> right. donation is. Right. Right. I mean, right. It's being there, ma- it's a, a matching group, fund of rage. <laughs> yeah, it, it really. Is. I mean, the Beto <laughs> thing—I'll never understand. I'll never understand how anybody gives that guy a dime. The Stacey Abrams deal, like, look—I understand that she's a progressive grassroots hero. The problem that we have as Republicans is Governor Kemp down there has done an absolutely terrific job. He's presiding over a state that doesn't look like Georgia did four or six years ago. It's a tight state. And so you don't want that cash advantage to get too huge. Now, I think he's going to win. And, you know, God bless him for taking one for the team with all the Stacey Abrams cash. But we got to make sure that guy is taken care of, too, because it, it would be an absolute shame if that's closer than it needs to be.
0: Yeah, I think he's going to win as well. But, look, she's raising money like she's an incumbent, and in her mind, she is an incumbent, right? She never conceded last time she lost to him. Last question briefly, Josh Holmes, and this is teasing something that we're going to talk about next hour on the show and take some calls on. There was something we did yesterday that sparked a thought. I'm going to put you on the spot just real quick. If you look back through history, it doesn't have to be – Modern. It doesn't have to be necessarily in America exclusively, but is there a political leader, an all-time political leader in your mind, who is the GOAT, the person that you most admire, you're most inspired by, your favorite political candidate or leader of all time? If you had to pick one, who would it be and why?
4: Oh, man, I just feel so trite to say Reagan. Um... But honestly, that's my experience. Right. I grew grew up in a household full of two Democrats who, you know, I mean, God bless them, They voted for Walter Mondale for crying out loud. And I was a kid who just loved the fact that I could laugh at Ronald Reagan. Right. I mean, this guy made me laugh and he brought humor and a different texture to politics. And like from my perspective, boy, we sure could use a lot more of that. And at the time, like, I think, he, you know, he just did everything he could do to change politics, you know, for decades and generations afterwards. And so, you know, I know yeah, no, it's a
0: fair answer. It. Like, it's not a surprise answer coming from a conservative, but we've got a vote already in the bank for Reagan. From Josh Holmes, our guest, founding partner of Cavalry, LLC, co-host of the Ruthless podcast. They got a fire episode out today. Josh, always enjoy it. We'll talk again soon. You got it. Talk then. It's the Guy Benson Show.
3: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
2: And the SB goes to Eileen Goo.
0: It's the Guy Benson Show. That was last night on ESPN, the ESPY Awards. The Breakout Athlete of the Year awarded to Eileen Goo, a skier, who grew up in America, trained in America, got all the best of America, is a student at Stanford, And then abandoned America and renounced her U.S. citizenship to compete for China at the Genocide Games. Remember that? We talked about it here in the Olympics. She renounced her U.S. citizenship and voluntarily went to the genocide regime to compete on their behalf because there's a lot of money to be made in that market over in China. And she's gotten very, very rich by backhanding the country that's given her so much, and she got an award from ESPN. Hard pass, no thank you from me. Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. Martha McCallum is here next.
3: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: It's our middle hour of three on the Guy Benson Show here today on this Thursday. Thank you for tuning in 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free, on demand, every day we do recommend it. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we enter this hour. The Dow up today, 162 points, closing at 32036. And with us here in studio. In Washington, D.C. at the Tony Snow Studios is Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of the story. She's fresh off the air from down the hall. uh, Studio One, I think they still call it here, although I don't know. They've renamed a bunch of stuff. She is Fox News politics co-anchor, author of the book Unknown Valor. Her podcast is The Untold Story with Martha McCallum, and it is so good to see you.
2: Hello, Guy. It's always nice to be in D.C., especially in the Tony Snow studio. I love that this is where you do your show from, and I love that big painting up there of Tony. He was such a fantastic, wonderful guy and uh, always, always so kind to me, and I cherished that friendship. And as I cherish your friendship, and it's very nice to be with you, and uh, it's good to be in D.C.,
0: it's good to have you here. I know you and Brett will be co-anchoring the January 6th committee primetime hearing tonight on Fox Business Network. That's exactly so right. So you'll be back on the other channel coming up. You're doing all the Fox today. Yes, Fox exactly. News, Fox Radio, Fox Hitting Business. It's, no, it's very great. good. So the big breaking news today, we covered it at the top. We don't have to get into it that much. The president has COVID. I get why it's a news story. It is the president of the United States who has the disease. He hadn't had it yet to our knowledge. He's 79 years old. By the same token, it seems like he's fine. The video he put out, he looks and sounds good. It's just like, okay. I mean, looks like he'll recover. We all hope that he does. How it's like people are treating this like an eight out of 10 news story. It feels to me more like a four or five out of 10. I think,
2: I think, I think two things. I think anytime that a president is ill, or I mean, if a president you know falls down and hurts his ankle, it's going to become a big story. He falls off how a long bike. Will, exactly? How long is he going to be? Um, how long is he going to be out? How is this going to impact the smooth uh, the smooth workings of the government? On the other hand, I think there's something you know about it that just takes my mind back to the early days of the campaign and the fact that he spent every single day of that campaign pretty much in the basement. He was completely isolated as a candidate. And I think in many ways it was sort of the secret sauce of to winning the nomination. He was um, not questioned a lot. He didn't answer questions about foreign policy. It was because of COVID he was able to have this very, very isolated campaign process. And now here we are at the other end of the spectrum for COVID and President Biden, where two years later, after being very well protected over the course of all of that time— Like so many people in this country who never had it at this point, he got it. Okay, And the good news is that you're right. He looks well. He's going to have every benefit of medical care and the best treatment available uh, to make sure that it's a speedy process for him. And I expect it will be, Uh, you know, absent some unforeseeable event. I think, uh, you know, hopefully it will be short.
0: And the thing is, everyone has it or had it. Or is going to get it at mm-hmm. some point, in my opinion. I don't know if you've got it. I've had it once. Yeah, I
2: had it uh, Christmas, last Christmas. Oh, that's mm-hmm. not a great time to have it. I Actually, <laughs> I
0: have a good friend who had it back-to-back Christmases. Oh. It, it blew out both terrible. Christmases. Despite yeah. having three shots. Mm-hmm. So, you know, go figure.
2: No, I had two shots and a booster. I would had a booster about three weeks before when I got it.
0: And and then you got it. Yeah, and then I got so it's, it. And, and you're fine. Thankfully, it was
2: just a cold. Yeah. That's what it is for
0: most people, right. even someone of Biden's age. So, uh, you know, our wishes are with him, and it sounds like things are going well. I want to ask you about – it's a Biden-related topic, and I saw you tweeted about it. There does seem to have been yeah, – I don't know if a memo went out, but – With this uh, coinciding with so many of the polls showing people don't want Biden to run again and a lot of people on the left are starting to kind of throw him overboard like yesterday's news. He is the sitting president of the United States in year two out of four. But it, it seems collectively among a lot of people on the left, they're just moving on from him. And the late night comedy shows have followed suit. They've been very protective of him. They often joke like SNL would do. It seems like more sketches making fun of Trump and Fox News than the president himself and the vice president. There's no shortage of humor there if you want to. Now, I guess they've decided it's safe to go after him. And we've seen a bit of a torrent in the last week of kind of pointed jokes about Joe Biden. What do you think is going on there?
2: I think the tide is turning. You know, I I think that uh, these comedians uh, like to go where the – You know, where the sentiment is going, they read the polls, too. They see what's going on. Uh, I think the flashpoint for some of them was the trip to Saudi Arabia, which was really a disaster in many ways. Uh, and I think it, it becomes tough to not look at what's going on uh, in an honest way. And I think, like anything else, like I said, I think they, they they read the polls. The one that sort of piqued my interest was when Jimmy Fallon reported, um, you know, or mentioned on his show that Dr. Fauci was resigning, and he said, you know, oh, at the White House, does everyone look around and like look at look at the president and say, like, do you have anything to announce? <laughs> and I was like, Whoa. wow okay, that's an interesting comment from Jimmy Fallon. And then Dana Carvey came out and did that whole um, bit, which he actually did a long time ago. Uh, He did it sort of in a Zoom call with Stephen Colbert a while back. And I remember thinking like – that it was like a little uncomfortable in the, you know, because he was really pushing it at a time when no one else, everybody was just embracing President Biden. He's like grandpa. He's the best thing that ever happened. He's the anti-Trump. You know, it's all great. And Carvey was making fun of him back then. Yes. But now he came out on stage on ABC and did a big, broad TV version of it. Uh, and I thought it was I, I think it's interesting. I think they try to, have, you know, be sort of on the pulse of where people are in the country. And I think they're feeling like if I don't get this way, um, how much longer can I? You know.
0: And certainly on the left, because they don't care what conservatives have to say. A lot of these guys just tailor their shows every night to a liberal audience. Uh,
2: they do. There's no other way to look at it. That's exactly what they do. They yep. didn't used to. You know, I mean, SNL used to pick poke fun at presidents on both sides of the aisle. Oh, yeah. All the time. It didn't matter, you know, because they loved to make fun of whoever was in charge. And that was that's sort of comedy. But we've lost that completely. Now there's left and right comedy, which honestly is, like, pretty boring, right. isn't like it?
0: All of the shows and then <laughs> Gutfeld. Right. That's that's basically it. That's
2: yeah. That's only a couple of very and, and he's very successful, I might say.
0: Very much so. I want to pick up on something that you just said. You described the Saudi Arabia trip as a disaster. And it reminds me a little bit of yesterday's trip that he made up to Massachusetts and the speech that he gave. And I did my opening monologue on it yesterday. And I kind of asked the question, what exactly was the point of this trip to take this huge carbon footprint entourage up the coast to just deliver a speech that could have been given at the White House and the, you know, Rose Garden or something like that. He wasn't really making a lot of news in that speech. He didn't do the big thing that they teased he might on the declaration of an emergency. Why did he have to do that? What was the point? And I think a lot of Americans are wondering that about the Saudi Arabia trip. What did they get out of that? It's a choice to send a president anywhere. And you would think the goal would be to achieve certain things. And I'm wondering on a very small scale, the Massachusetts photo op yesterday and on a much larger, much more high profile scale scale, this this Saudi Arabia trip, what were they hoping to achieve and did they come close to it? And I think at the very least, that's an open question on both of those trips. But you mentioned Saudi.
2: Yeah, nothing changed after the meeting in Saudi Arabia. Um, And and the problem is, you know, the president, I think, spent too much of his focus, and and I understand the concern, obviously, about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. I've spoken about that in the past as well. Um, And I think there are legitimate questions to be raised about our relationship with Saudi Arabia based on their human rights record. But the goal of the trip, Um, really was to sort of reestablish a stronger tie with Saudi Arabia. And, you know, at the end of the Trump administration, you had the Abraham Accords, which really was quite revolutionary. I mean, you had this uh, growing alliance or growing relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And the question at that point was— And other Arab states. Yes, and other Arab states— The question at the end of of the Trump period was, is Saudi Arabia going to become part of this as well? And that would be a huge moment that maybe they were about to sort of cross that turn as well, because everything is pivotal in global uh, in global politics. But what you have now, ever since the Trump administration ended, is a movement away from that. Mm -hmm. You have the gravity center becoming Saudi Arabia, talking to Russia and China about business deals. Right. And not talking to us. Remember that in March the White House reached out to talk to the Crown Prince on the phone and was denied a phone call. Yeah,
0: they like sent him to voicemail.
2: Denied a phone call. That that's a big deal. So the the relationship did not move forward in fact it may have moved backwards after this trip. The the power centers of the of the world are changing and those power centers appear to be leaving the United States behind and looking at us as though we were a once great power. And I've long said that when you look at, for instance, the United Kingdom, uh, you look at once great powers, history is full of them, and you ask yourself, what's the tipping point, right? What makes those things happen? And if you have a president who appears to be weak on the world stage as this, and this is, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal had great coverage of this meeting before and after, and they labeled it. A huge embarrassment. That's not a good thing for the United States. Yeah,
0: I think part of it also, if you're talking about a declining power, is so many internal divisions where, I mean, we it's hard for us to project a unified sense of power around the world because we are constantly at each other's throats. It, this also seems unsustainable. And also
2: TikTok. Yeah, it's all of it. Right? It's just like <laughs> the disintegration of American society, uh, like of, civil of American society. society, is is very frightening to me.
0: And a very short attention span. There's a lot of stuff playing into it, but I, you do get some of those like you know fall of Rome vibes from time to time. Uh, and, and absolutely. I, I don't think it's inevitable.
2: No, it's not inevitable. It feels like
0: if we keep going down this path a while longer, it might become inevitable. That's what worries me.
2: I, I agree with you. I mean I've, I've often thought about the fall of the Roman Empire and what it looks like right now in the United States. You have a lot of hedonism, a lot of self-indulgence, a lot of um, focusing on things that aren't truly important, a loss of uh, sort of understanding of literature and history and all of those things. When you lose all of that, you are in danger of losing your culture and losing, losing your status in the world.
0: One thing that I saw is a story in the Washington Post this week – And I like looking for glimmers of hope where maybe a tide might be turning a little bit. The Post interviewed a bunch of neighbors of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Almost all of them are liberal Democrats, supporters of legalized abortion, disagree with him on any number of issues. But they decided to finally speak out and say we are so tired of the targeting of his house, these agitators coming into our neighborhood and harassing him and his family. Our own children are afraid to leave our houses and even though we might disagree with him and maybe agree with some of their points, enough of this. It's its gross. Stop. And when we sometimes politely confront them, they call us Karens. They turn on us. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, you know, maybe are there some people even on the left who get just pushed too much? And maybe there's a, an equivalent on the right as well where people just kind of throw up their hands and say, OK, the polarization is too much. There need to be some lines of propriety. And even if it means – going against the tribe on some level we're willing to do it. I don't know, maybe it's naive of me to look at one example and, and try to extrapolate into something, but it's at least a hopeful sign.
2: I, I always think there are signs of hope, and I see a lot of it in young people um, and their outlook for the country and their ability to to engage. I, I think, unfortunately, generally there's a catalyst that brings people together. And... Um, sometimes that catalyst is war. Sometimes it's uh, aggression, opposition from the outside that brings people together. I don't know what it will be, That, and I hope certainly that it's not that. Um, but I think we do need to open our eyes in terms of the what's changing in the world and that you have these autocracies in Russia and China who very much want to take over uh, the sort of Strong man global position in the in the world, and you know you you can't um, you can't take what we have here for granted, mm-hmm. and uh, I look also at recruitment right recruitment in the military is down dramatically they're lowering their target numbers for this year because they can 't get people to join um, you know other environments for employment are more attractive uh, there are lots of jobs that let you stay home and work. <laughs> Um, So we are in a moment – I think COVID did a number on the country in a huge way, and I think that it took a lot of work ethic out and perhaps some patriotism as well. So I'd love to see all of that uh, restored and strengthened because I love this country, and I am optimistic about the future of this country. But I think we have to be realistic about where we are right now and what we're going to fight for.
0: And you have to think about – even if you're upset with America or feel like we have all these imperfections and flaws, uh, some of that I think is overblown. Some of it is true – But you also have to ask the question, if it's not us, if the world order is not sort of revolving around us and oriented around the United States, then who? And the answers to that question are scary. And definitely Absolutely. definitely worse, especially if you're looking at China.
2: And China is saying us <laughs> our way right Yeah you know you get to be the leader forever if you're Xi Jinping and you want that to happen. Same thing basically we've watched with Putin as well. Um, I was out in Wyoming though last week and talk about optimism. I went to a, a fantastic rodeo. I re sort of visited the beauty of America and what this country is and it made me so proud that to type be, of
0: trip can help
2: it, it does you have to get out of Washington you have to get out of New York you have to see the rest of the country and you see the pride that people have in it and it does inspire me absolutely and but there are I, there are I bubbles just want you know folks in our bubbles uh, to to understand how precious this experiment really is
0: 30 seconds very quickly we're gonna be asking the audience this question we asked Joss Holmes in the last hour is there a political leader all-time from anywhere in the world that is the person you admire the most as a political leader.
2: So when you ask me that Winston Churchill comes to mind and for this reason I've studied a fair amount of about World War II. And the amazing thing that Winston Churchill had was the ability to be realistic with people about what was going on and the threat that they faced. But he always was able to then bring it around to who they were and why they would succeed and how they would rise That's above a great it. answer. And that's what I love about him. I think all politicians should emulate that. You have to be realistic and hopeful.
0: Martha McCallum, my guest here in studio in D.C. on The Guy Benson Show. Great to see you. Thank you, Guy. And we will be right back. The Guy
3: Benson Show. More next.
0: I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Yesterday on the program, we brought you an update on UK politics and Boris Johnson giving his final performance during Prime Minister's questions. They've got a new Prime Minister coming in there this fall, and then I played a flashback clip of Margaret Thatcher. And I am a big admirer of Margaret Thatcher as I've read two of her books. I go back sometimes and watch some of her old speeches. And she – I'm not sure if she's my answer to this question, but she'd be right up there as a finalist. And now I've asked both of my guests today this question. Now I want to pose it to all of you at 833-456-1300. That's our phone number here at the show. The question is, if you had to pick one political leader of all time – Could be American. Could be a recent president of the United States. It could be a foreign leader. It could be a member of Congress, even a mayor, someone who's helped you. Anyone who's a political leader. Who is your favorite ever, like the goat in your mind? The person who inspires you the most, maybe the person whose admiration you have for them is higher than anyone else. Your favorite, most admired, most inspiring political leader ever. Who is it and why? We have a vote for Reagan from Josh Holmes. We have a vote for Churchill from Martha McCallum. And I'm putting in, let's say, half a vote for Margaret Thatcher, half a vote for Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) I want to hear from you. 833-456-1300. Who is your favorite political leader ever? And a short explanation why that person holds that position in your mind. 833-456-1300. Your call's coming up. Talking
3: about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Our phone number here at the program, 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. And if you're just joining us, Here's the question that I have, and it sort of inspired me yesterday playing a clip of Margaret Thatcher. I was debating with myself, is she maybe my favorite political figure of all time? I'm not really sure. We started talking about it amongst our team and debating a little bit, and I said, you know what, let's ask the audience. I bet you we would get a pretty interesting array of answers. So Josh Holmes in the first hour told us that his answer is Ronald Reagan. Martha McCallum in the last segment said Winston Churchill. If you had to pick the person, the political leader who is your favorite ever, it could be American or not, contemporary or through history, it's sort of a wide open question. Who is your favorite political leader ever and why? 833-456-1300, toll free number here at the show. 833 833- Four five six one three zero zero. There really isn't a right or wrong answer here; it's very personal and subjective. Eight three three four five six thirteen hundred. The calls are coming in. Let's start in the state of Florida. Charlie, you are first on the Guy Benson Show. Hello.
4: Hey, sir. I enjoy your show when I can listen to it. Um, Thank you. I'm from jo- I'm from Georgia. So it's not going to be Jimmy Carter, but the state to the north would be <laughs> Tennessee. And I, I can't remember if he was a representative elected or if he was a senator appointed
5: before the 17th Amendment, but that would be James Polk, who was president. And I admire him because he said he was only going to run one term, and he was true to his word. And that is rare in any kind of politics. And Polk did it. You know, this is before the Civil War, so I think he did a fairly good job, and you know, of staying true to his word. I admire him for that.
0: You know what, Charlie? I did not expect James Polk to be the first answer that we got on this, but I think it's a good answer, and I've read a few articles from historians recently in the last decade or so about how James Polk actually is now consistently ranked as one of the better presidents in our history because he made a few promises, said he had a few goals that he was going to try to achieve. He achieved them. And then he stepped away. I think that's a good, interesting answer, Charlie. And I appreciate the phone call. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Your most admired, your favorite political leader ever. Who was it? Why? Give us a call. 833-456-1300. Back to the phones. Let's see. Mark calling from Ohio. Mark, glad you called.
5: Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you for what you do for America every day. My most honored or respected politician is Ronald Reagan. I worked on Ronald Reagan's first campaign in 1980. The situation felt so much like the situation that we are in today I admire the fact that Ronald Reagan uh, not only won a tremendous victory in 1980, but he got to Washington and did something about it. He also had the sense to hire great people, delegate, and get the job done.
0: All right, so your answer is the second vote we've gotten for Ronald Reagan. When you worked for him in 1980, how old were you, roughly?
5: I was 18, sir.
0: So your first ever vote was for Reagan for president. That's pretty cool.
5: That is correct. I had voted for George H.W. Bush in the primary in May.
0: Okay, and then you turned over to Team Reagan. He became the nominee. And now, after he served eight years and really cemented a legacy, you're calling in and telling a national audience that Ronald Reagan is your number one of all time. Great call. Good answer. Mark from Ohio. 833-456-1300. Tom, Minnesota, St. Paul, the capital out there. Tom, welcome.
4: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, and I appreciate what you do. I guess I have two.
5: I support Ronald Reagan, who's been mentioned a couple times, but my all-time favorite is Pope John Paul. For over 25 years, he was a world-recognized leader, and he helped facilitate the transformation in Poland from communism.
0: Wow, okay, so I'm trying to think, would would the pope count as a political leader as opposed to a religious leader? He certainly had a political component— But it sounds like it's some of his political angling that won the title in your mind. So we'll allow it, Tom. He's a religious leader, clearly. He leads a massive global church. But John Paul II famously was instrumental in helping to defeat communism. And he was close with Reagan and with Thatcher, actually. That was actually a big alliance at the time. So out-of-the-box thinking, I like it, Tom. Thanks. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Who is your favorite political leader ever and why? Let's see here. Let's go to Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Am I saying your name right?
5: Absolutely, Guy. I very much enjoy your show. Uh, My favorite political leader would be Mao Zedong. And I know that given uh, demographics of your audience, that's probably uh, quite a shock to some people. However, you did say political leader. I'm not talking about morality or values. What Mao Zedong did was set China uh, uh, on a direction that we now see it uh uh, and as a world power, so from that, and they've lifted uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people out of poverty. The United States hasn't done that, so you now that's uh, that's that's why I I, I, uh, I very much admire him. Wow. Okay. I mean, I knew
0: there were some communists in the audience. There have to be, just as you know, a, a matter of the numbers. But wasn't expecting to get that phone call. And uh, first of all. I appreciate it. Thanks for the phone call. I would just fact check you. The United States and free market capitalism has pulled more people out of poverty than any system ever, especially communism. And Mao is responsible for the deaths of 60 million people. So it'd be like calling up and saying Hitler is your answer to this question and then multiplying the death count by like a factor of what, five, six, seven, something like that. So you're entitled to your opinion, but if you really admire Mao – who was a butcher and starved a bunch of people, millions to death. I question the choice. I said there are no right or wrong answers. I guess that's true. It is subjective. In my book, it's a pretty wrong answer, though. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. To Montana we go. Kurt, you are up on The Guy Benson
5: Show. Uh, Harry Truman, just the whistle stop campaign, and I just thought he was... One of the last best presidents.
0: Interesting. Was there any particular thing that he did as president? I know one of the big controversies was dropping the bombs on Japan. He did other things as well. Is there a reason beyond the way he campaigned that makes you vote for Truman? Yeah, didn't he ride
5: on the back of trains?
0: I mean, Tall, he did. He did. He did. Yeah. And so that was definitely true. He wanted to connect to people. We play a clip here in the commercial break on Fox News Radio Online about Truman. He was widely written off as having lost to Dewey, I believe, of New York, a Republican. And I guess Harry Truman got the last laugh in that election. Kurt, thanks for the call. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Your all-time favorite political leader, and why. Donna is in Pennsylvania. Hi, Donna. Thanks for listening.
4: Yes, I would have to say gold in my ear when I think about the incredible story of her life with being a housewife and how she reached out to um, Henry Kissinger, and it was Nixon administration. And, and in my opinion, what I've read, she pretty much saved Israel uh, when they were under attack.
0: First ever female prime minister of Israel is the fact that she was a trailblazing woman. Part of your thinking, Donna? Yes. I mean, makes sense. Gold in my ear. Cool answer. Interesting answer. One of the first female leaders in an advanced or Western country ever. So I mean, absolutely a shatterer of a glass ceiling and a big one, especially in the Middle East. Can you imagine? Thanks for the call, Donna. 833-456-1300. Really interesting calls here. I was worried it was just going to be a bunch of, like, Reagan and Trump back and forth. Nothing wrong with that, if that's your opinion, but we're getting a a pretty interesting array of answers. Favorite political leader ever, and why? Bob in Chicago is up on The Guy Benson Show. Bob, what do you think?
5: Uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Basically because uh, uh, his, what do you want to call it, his... uh, Um, I can't think of the word, but uh, altruism towards the South after he knew he was going to win the war.
0: Yeah. You know, I think it's hard to argue against Lincoln as someone who saved the country. Right. Abolishing slavery, winning the Civil War, finding a way to bring us back together. Obviously cut down far too soon. Lincoln. If not the greatest president of all time, no doubt top three. And that will be the case for as long as our country endures, hopefully for many, many years to come. Lincoln is someone that I mentioned when I was teasing this topic. And, Bob, I again, I, I will put two thumbs up to your answer. Abraham Lincoln, 833-456-1300, 833-456-1300. The phones are buzzing. Let's go to Beverly calling from Virginia. Beverly, Hello.
5: Hi. Hi. So I want to chime in and say John F. Kennedy.
0: Okay. And why?
5: Um, For he's such a statesman, intelligent and courage.
0: I think that's fair. He wrote the book Profiles in Courage. He took a bullet and passed away far too early in his first term. He had so many people admiring him. He, He excited a lot of voters. I know that he was... In sort of modern American history, his election was a huge deal. His assassination is one of those moments that people say they will never forget where they were when it happened. And uh, JFK, I think, is an interesting answer for sure. He was definitely a Democrat. But. Uh, totally unrecognizable, I would say, compared to today's Democratic Party, but parties change. That's part of it. Beverly, appreciate you being out there. Thank you. 833-456-1300. Your calls continue to stream in here. Toll-free, 833-456-1300. I'm going to take more of your answers after this short break. Give us a call. Let us know what you think. The best or, in your mind, most admired political leader Ever, It could be an American or not. It can be someone who's on the scene today or not. 833-456-1300. More of your calls right after this.
3: Guy Benson will be right back.
0: We are back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our phone number is 833-456-1300. Toll free. Your connection here. 833 833- four five six one three zero zero question on the table is this if you had to pick one political leader ever who's your favorite who would it be and why let's get back to your calls rob in delaware rob glad you're here
5: hey good afternoon i say Zelensky,
0: and
4: why
5: uh, I mean just look at how he's united that country and, and brought everyone together to I mean he
4: he come off a stand up and put on his turtle shell and he's fighting for his country.
5: Afghanistan yeah. president packed up and booked.
0: Yep. With all the gold and stuff and the cash and got out of there. And Zelensky was given an opportunity by the United States and allies to leave and go sort of lead the country in abstention, And he refused to do it. He stayed in the capital while it was being actively attacked by the Russians. And the Russians are so clearly the aggressors and in the wrong here. And the amount of courage for a young guy with very little political background to be doing what he's doing. I think it's a pretty good vote, especially if you're looking at the moment in time, this era. I think Zelensky is a pretty good vote. Thanks, Rob, for the call out there in Delaware. Let's go to Darren in Michigan. Darren, you're up on The Guy Benson Show.
4: Hi, Guy. You know, I'm going to go with another
5: James. I'm going to say James Madison um i just admire him he was such a prolific writer his federalist papers uh, that discussed just such a wide range of topics everything from inalienable rights to the dangers of tyranny to gun freedoms that we you know that we have today due to the second amendment i just think that yep. his
4: writings made up the backbone of much of the amendments that that protect
5: our freedoms today
0: yep i mean the bill of rights i'm a fan and James Madison, one of the most important founders of this country, as you said, a prolific writer and just invaluable to what we've been able to build here and can hopefully hopefully maintain and continue to build. I love that answer. James Madison, 833-456-1300, 833-456-1300. Kurt is calling from Marietta, Georgia. Kurt, glad you're here.
3: Hey, guy. I love the show. Uh, I love Winston Churchill, but... I think B.B. B. Netanyahu, uh, I love the way he does his business. He's, uh, he's diplomatic, he's world-class, he'll negotiate. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's going to draw a line, put his foot down, and it's Israel first. And I think that's a leader's job, and I just admire the hell out of him for it. You know. Yeah, and
0: he's a very clear communicator as well. I've always enjoyed watching some of his speeches on the world stage where he shows up and he'll tell it, exactly how it is or the way he sees it and doesn't really uh, use a lot of flowery language. He cuts right to the point, even if it's gruff, even if it's tough, he says it. And I think that's an interesting answer for sure. Kurt, thank you for listening. Appreciate it. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Who's your favorite political leader ever and why? Perk is in Maryland. Perk, welcome to The Guy Benson Show.
5: Hey, how you doing, guy? I've got Very to go well. with uh, George Washington. Um, he's the first political leader ever to give power back to the people. Every, a political leader up until that point, once they had gotten and attained power, they kept it and kept it and kept it. Whereas George Washington saw the potential and said, no, we've got a democracy yep. here. I'm going to give it back.
0: So, I think I mean, it's a yeah. it's a fabulous answer. And you talk about and we were talking earlier about Lincoln as one of the greatest presidents ever. Washington has to be right up there, you know, just leading the country to victory over the Brits. No small feat. And then serves two terms and walks away, setting an amazing precedent that stood for many years. Then it was eventually enshrined in the Constitution. Thanks for that call. 456, 1300. Willie out on the West Coast in California. Willie, welcome.
5: Hey, how about Nelson Mandela? And for every
0: reason you can think of. Good answer. I like Mandela. Very brave guy, willing to go to prison and never back down in his beliefs and wanting to bring justice and racial equality to a place that did not have it. Uh, hard to argue there. Nelson Mandela. Good answer. Eight three three Let's go to Texas. And John. Hi, John.
4: Hi, Guy. How are you? Uh, enjoy Very your well. show. Uh, my, I have a special place in my heart for Ronald Reagan. He was my Commander in Chief while I was, served in the Navy. Uh, what he was able to accomplish during the Cold War uh, and uh, peace through strength. But I do, I will have to add that I think there's an argument to be made for the four guys that are,
5: that sit on top of Mount Rushmore.
0: All right, I think uh, it's well said. Thank you for your service. And I think if you're serving in the, arms, uh, in the armed forces and you can really admire the person who is the commander-in-chief, that's, that's good. That, that probably boosts your morale and sounds like that was the case for John in Texas. We are almost up on a break. We've got to take it. Then we're moving on. But I'm looking at my board. We have so many calls. We've got to vote for Goldwater. We've got to vote for Rush Limbaugh. A vote for Joe Biden, if you can believe it. Alexander Hamilton, Teddy Roosevelt, and others. I see a fictional character on the board. Archon the Great from the comic books. All right. I didn't say it had to be real. I guess a fictional character. That's an answer, I suppose. All right. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. You do not want to miss it. Miranda Devine is our guest. When we come back, stay tuned. It's the happy hour on a Thursday here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every day. That final hour right now is the happy hour. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free of charge, on demand, right there for you at your fingertips. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there as well. And this hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our friends there, Delicious, refreshing, expanding due to popular demand. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Check it out. Find out where they're sold near you. Many more places now or order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Joining us now is Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor and author of the book Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. Miranda, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Guy. Great to be with you. I want to start on the Hunter Biden front because I saw a few headlines this week suggesting that there is more evidence, at least circumstantial evidence, about the timing of Hunter Biden's visits with his father following overseas business trips. That would, I say at the very least, cast additional doubt on the veracity of the president's comprehensive categorical denial that he never talked about his son's foreign business dealings ever with Hunter. That has already been undermined repeatedly but this is just one more chink in the armor, it would seem, yes?
6: Yes, Guy. I mean, it is just so difficult for Joe Biden and the White House to keep ignoring the mounting evidence from the laptop. And this is just one example of where uh, Joe Biden is clearly interested involved in his son's overseas business dealings um you you know you look at his uh calendar entries and it's just uncanny how many times hunter is overseas you know mingling with russian oligarchs at the right hand of vladimir putin or mingling with the chinese top-level ccp agents and then he comes home and within sometimes minutes hours A day or two, he's there having breakfast, lunch or some other sort of meeting with his father, either at the White House or at the VP's residence. Uh, That just adds to what we know already, which is that Joe Biden met with hunters overseas, business uh, partners. He also was frequently on the phone, on a speakerphone, uh, talking to Likely prospects when Hunter was meeting them, uh, he, uh, you know, had dinner at a restaurant in Georgetown with people from uh, Hunter's business partners from Russia, Kazakhstan, um, and also Ukraine. And there's so much evidence about that. There's the 10% for the big guy cut in one of the Chinese deals. It's just impossible to maintain this fiction, this lie that Joe Biden knew nothing about Hunter's business dealings. And I think, you know, the sad thing for Joe Biden and the White House is that they should have got out in front of this and just come clean with the American people. And the fact that they didn't means that uh, the overwhelming majority of voters now don't believe the president. They think that he was aware and involved. Uh, This is according to a Rasmussen poll just out uh, recently. And they also, um, a large preponderance of them, think that Joe Biden profited from uh, some of these Chinese deals.
0: Well, and here's the thing. On top of all the other evidence that you just ran through, Miranda, previous evidence that we knew, in addition to this question that I just asked you and and you responded to it, there was the testimony of Tony Bobulinski, who says that he personally witnessed Joe Biden involved in the business dealings of his family. Repeatedly, And Bobolinsky was a business partner, so he was there. It wasn't hearsay. He said he personally witnessed it. He knows that to be a fact. There was the voicemail that came out recently where it seemed to be Joe Biden checking in on his son and making at least a reference or an inquiry into a business dealing. And what I don't really understand still to this day is why team Biden. And Joe Biden didn't just say, look, of course, my son has a lot of things going on. Sometimes he would ask my advice on things. We would talk about all different elements of his life. But nothing that we ever did was unethical or illegal. That would be questionable. And people should dig into whether that's true. But that's not the tact that they took. That's not what Biden said. Biden said just a blanket statement. He never talked to Hunter about any of this stuff. And I think that goes very much to a credibility question, because if he's aggressively asserting something that's a lie, it makes sense to question what else he might be covering up or hiding. And I don't think that's irrelevant. I know a lot of people roll their eyes. Why do these weird right wingers still talk about Hunter Biden? I think that what I just described is one of the reasons why.
6: It is entirely correct, Guy. It is not about Hunter Biden, who is a sort of sympathetic character, I guess. I mean, totally messed up life, very difficult uh, childhood and uh, and a raging drug addiction. So um, it's not about him. It is about Joe Biden. It's about Joe Biden using his troubled son as a bad man. It's about the... um, influence peddling scheme that he and his brother jim biden were running from the very earliest days of joe's career back in delaware they got away with it for so long but as you say tony bobulinski is a crucial part of this uh my book is not just about the laptop it is also about all the material that tony bobulinski handed over to the fbi and It's not just his own personal recollections, he's a very credible witness, Uh, but it is also WhatsApp messages with Hunter and with his partners. It's documents, it's uh, emails, it's voicemails, It's conversations that they have had in which they refer to Joe Biden as the big guy, in which Tony Bobulinski is told in no uncertain terms, be careful about using Joe Biden's name. They, meaning Hunter and Jim Biden, are very sensitive about that. Um, There's, you know, if you were putting together uh, a case, uh, as Rudy Giuliani often says, you know, when he did the RICO cases with the the gang. mafia in uh, New York, uh, this would be classic evidence that you would insert into a very watertight case. So at the moment, you know, we're journalists. This is what we're seeing. We're really just touching the surface. When the Republicans get in to the majority, as they believe they will, at least in the House after the midterms, they are going to have subpoena power. They will be able to call before them Hunter Biden and his business partners, some of whom have already given test to testimony at the grand jury in Delaware. And I think that then we will be able to follow the money uh, like Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson did. And that's where we will discover uh, just how compromised the president is or isn't when it comes particularly to China.
0: Well, you just mentioned the grand jury. That is something we haven't even touched on yet in this conversation. There is an active and there has been for quite some time, right, for years at this point, at least a year or two, a federal probe, a criminal probe into the business dealings and machinations of Hunter Biden. And there is a report this week that that investigation, that federal investigation has reached, quote, a critical stage with officials weighing potential charges, maybe even criminal charges against Hunter Biden himself. What are you hearing? What's the timeline there? Because I think it's also, again, hard for the critics who like to hand wave all of this away as they did leading up to the election, famously, just totally ignoring and burying a legitimate news story, which is what you wrote your book primarily about, the laptop. They just censored it. They decided it was fake news. They pretended it was Russian disinformation. They marched along with what the Democrats told them to say. That's what the news media did. I think it's very difficult to, again, just come after someone like you who focuses on this and continues to cover it, saying, oh, it's irrelevant. It's not a thing. The son of the president of the United States, where there was clear... Interaction at the very least on the business dealings that this son was involved in, trading on the family name, something that was denied by now the president, which seems patently untrue based on a lot of evidence. That son is under federal investigation and may be under federal indictment at some point soon. Of course that's a news story, Miranda. Of course, it's a new story.
6: And of course, that is why the New York Times finally came out of its hole. And, uh, you know, 19 months or so after we had broken the story, they admitted that it was true, that there was a laptop, the laptop is legitimate. And uh, they had verified several of the emails on it themselves. So then it became a story again. And, uh, you know, I I mean, what can we say about that? We were correct from the beginning. And uh, what we didn't know until after the election was that hunter biden was uh under criminal investigation in delaware with the u.s attorney david weiss then convening this grand jury that's now heard testimony from his business partners hunter's ex-business partners and also ex-lovers uh and they're looking into tax fraud uh, and by and that. by
0: the way just 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 to jump in miranda because i want to hear just what they're looking into what you were just about to say but just as some added context You might have some critics or some people who are trying to defend the president or the Democrats or what have you saying, well, this could all just be political. Right. Sounds like it started under the Trump administration. Maybe the investigation is political. If that were the case, if this were just a big nothing burger that was sort of a fishing expedition, the Trump people sniffing around because the Trump administration ordered the DOJ to get politicized and try to find something to hang on the Bidens. And I mean, look. I don't put a lot past Donald Trump, and he certainly tried to get political with the Ukrainians involving the Bidens. That was very famous. But in this case, it was DOJ playing it by the book, and the existence of an active investigation into Hunter Biden during the election did not leak. Even during all the laptop stuff and all of the censorship that big tech and the media was doing while the Republicans were trying to push that story, if the whole point was to hang something on the Bidens for political reasons— That would have been the perfect time to leak the existence of this probe. It didn't happen because it's above board. It's being done, as I said, by the book. And clearly there's some substance here. It's not a political witch hunt.
6: Yes, and it was impressive that there was no leaking um, during the election. And uh, the other thing is that, I mean, before Joe Biden was really even – Um, thought about as a legitimate candidate, um, this probe had started. So, uh, you know, I I just don't buy that this was some sort of politically motivated witch hunt. And also, if you were going to do that, Delaware would be the last place on the planet that you would launch such a probe. And so, and, and also, I mean, it would be pretty extraordinary if the Fed's uh, if they were being honest, didn't have Hunter Biden come across their path and uh, and start to try investigating. And, you know, I understand that there have been other jurisdictions that have had information come to them and they've funneled it through to Delaware because Delaware was already doing this pro, which may have been helpful to the Bidens. You never know. So, uh, but but look, we know that Hunter's paid back over $2 million. I heard one number of $2.8 million in uh, unpaid taxes to try and, uh, you know ameliorate some of the problems with this tax investigation then there's money laundering and also foreign lobbying uh, potential violations uh, because he was you know very much uh, lobbying his father let's say on uh, on on behalf of various uh, overseas uh, companies and and various countries so um so that's all being weighed up but at the same time we've just got a new report from CNN this week saying that The uh, grand jury is also looking at this gun problem that Hunter has, where he uh, lied on a background check in Delaware, said that he was not uh, using drugs or addicted to drugs, um, which... You know, you can't be if you're going to buy a gun. And he bought a gun. And then that gun, some very shortly thereafter, was thrown in a trash can in Delaware, in Joe Biden's actually local shopping centre by Hunter Biden's then lover, his um, his widowed sister-in-law, Hallie Biden. And, uh, and and the gun then went missing from the trash can. A vagrant came and picked it up. It became a drama. Uh, the, the local police came, the state police came, and even the Secret Service, or two men saying that, they were from the Secret Service, showed up uh, at the gun shop and demanded to see uh, and and presumably take away the background check that Hunter had uh, lied on. And uh, to his credit, the owner of the gun store said no. Um, so we know all this, and now we've... Uh, you know, people have gone to jail for lying on background checks. It's a very serious criminal offence if proven, and uh, now we see that this grand jury is also looking at that. Um, but you know, I guess that the slightly worrying aspect of this is that the grand jury was very active last summer, uh, had a lot of people coming testifying, and then it closed up shop. I'm told just last month that they may have had to reopen to um, bring back a couple of more witnesses um, who had conflicting testimony um, but I mean what are they waiting for and the problem is that you know there's a sort of an unwritten rule that you uh, that you don't um, have grand juries uh, operate and you just suspend operations and certainly don't don't come up with indictments when you're in the shadow of an election campaign in case it Affects it politically if it's a political uh, investigation, and um, we're coming up to a couple of weeks away. We'll be 90 days from the midterms, and sure. uh, you know a month later it'll be 60 days. So um, whether or not the grand jury, uh, the uh, David Weiss, the U.S. Attorney in Delaware, is slow walking this in order to get past. The, um, get past the midterms, that's a question um, that would be improper. And he seems to have always behaved uh, with great propriety. Uh, but again, he suspended operations around the 2020 presidential election uh, in this probe, so as not to influence it. And maybe they're just not quite ready to bring out any potential indictments uh, in the next two weeks or the next six Well, weeks. I just want
0: to see what the truth is, and hopefully we get to that. I mean, just the details, some of the things you were just describing. In the last few minutes, it's just so sorted. It's a mess. Whether it's criminal, we will see. And when we will see, I think, is very much, to your point, in doubt right now, up in the air. And I know you will follow it as closely as anyone else. Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, a contributor here at Fox News. Her book is Laptop from Hell. Miranda, always enjoy it. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Guy. We'll take a break. We'll come right back on the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show.
3: Conservative Talk, Guy Benson Show.
5: The border is secure. The border, um, we are working to make the border more secure. That has been a historic challenge.
0: Back on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. Well, that was Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary in Aspen. Must be nice. Just... Declaring that the border is secure when, of course, that is untrue. The border is not secure. You can make the case that the border isn't completely open, but it's certainly not closed and it is absolutely not secure. And we've had officials on this show who say that the U.S. government lacks operational control over the southern border. And we just told you last week about video footage taken by our colleagues here at Fox News showing hundreds of people just streaming across the river with no one there to meet them, just walking into the country undeterred, apparently with impunity. That is not a secure border. It's insulting to tell us that it's secure. No one believes it, and they shouldn't. June was the fourth consecutive month of more than 200,000 people who were apprehended at the border, which does not count the tens of thousands of godaways that we know of every single one of those months, as we close in closer and closer to a million known godaways who've entered the country during this presidency. The border is secure, says Mayorkas. Mayor Adams in New York now complaining about illegal immigrants being bused into New York. Oh, it's such a burden to the city and their resources. We heard the same complaint from Mayor Bowser here in D.C. Oh, do you not like that, guys? Is that a problem? Your resources? There's a law and order problem? You don't like that? Welcome to the world of Texas and Arizona. And border communities that have been experiencing this now for years. And it's been worse than ever in the last year and a half. It's amazing how they kind of look the other way or even celebrate illegal immigration and preen and posture until it's on their doorstep. And then it's not so great anymore. The White House calling bussing the migrants to these cities shameful. What's shameful about it? Explain, please. We'll talk more about that tomorrow, I think, on the Guy Benson show. It's the happy hour. We'll take a quick break and be right back.
3: talking about the issues you care about Guy Benson
0: It is the Guy Benson Show it is our happy hour thank you very much for tuning in I saw this yesterday in fact I would say this qualifies as woke tales, woke tales. There is a concert venue in Minneapolis called First Avenue and they were scheduled to host Dave Chappelle he was going to do a stand up comedy performance and they decided to pull the plug at the last minute. So they signed all the contracts. Everything was agreed to. It had all been advertised. Tickets had been sold. And at the very last minute, a change was made. And the management put out this statement. The Dave Chappelle show tonight at First Avenue has been canceled and is moving to the Varsity Theater. To staff, artists in our community, we hear you and we are sorry. We know we must hold ourselves accountable to the highest standards. And we know we let you down. We are not just a black box with people in it. We understand that First Ave is not just a room, but meaningful beyond our walls. The First Avenue team and you have worked hard to make our venues the safest spaces in the country, and we will continue with that mission. We believe in diverse voices and the freedom of artistic expression, but in honoring that, we lost sight of the impact it would have. We know there are some who will not agree with this decision. You are welcome to send feedback. If you're a ticket holder, look for an email with information about the new venue is what they added at the end. We believe in diverse voices and the freedom of artistic expression. But. Nope, you should stop right there. There is no but. And by the way, you're talking about being one of the safest spaces, working to be one of the safest spaces in the country. Comedy shows shouldn't be super safe spaces. They should be a little bit intellectually dangerous. That's kind of the point. They booked it. They know who Chappelle is. They know the controversies. And then obviously the mob got loud enough to bully these people into moving the show and canceling it out of this venue. It's just pathetic. And Chappelle himself will be just fine. He's very successful. He'll find a place to do his comedy for the rest of his life. It's other lesser known people who are getting the message. If you cross a certain group of people, the woke mob, there will be repercussions and you might not be as insulated and rich and famous as Dave Chappelle. Absolutely pitiful stuff from First Avenue Theater and just the groveling apologies. We're so sorry. We should be held to higher standards. We let you down. And they're addressing this to the whole community as if the whole community was clamoring to cancel this show from a black comedian. That is not the case. The loudest voices on one side were clamoring. And, of course, they're not satisfied. A bunch of replies being like, this isn't good enough. You just got caught or whatever. And, of course, they're getting dragged by everyone else who can't stand the woke mob. Never crumble to these people. It will never be good enough. And we are in the grips of a weird momentary mania in our society where this type of thing happens on the regular. And I know they say cancel culture is a myth. It's not really real. It's just not. It's obviously real. People can feel it. And I think that's part of the cultural backlash that the hard left is facing right now, as they should. And I think First Avenue is going to get some of the whirlwind here, and they deserve it. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, and they've won a very stupid prize for themselves. And the people that you're trying to placate will never be placated. That's in their DNA. The whole point is to never be satisfied and to always push more. And now you've made yourself a mark. You've identified yourself. You've raised your hand. We can be bullied. So enjoy that. First Avenue Theater. I'm sure the folks who went to the other place, Varsity Theater, had themselves a wonderful time. Enjoying a comedy show and free speech and free expression, which First Avenue Theater in Minneapolis says they support, but dot, dot, dot. Nope, that's not how it works. Certainly not how it should work. If you believe in the meaning of those words, then you would not take the action that this theater just did. Totally hollow, completely meaningless. And I think, again, they've opened themselves up to a world of problems, and they deserve those problems as far as I'm concerned. All right, we've got a break. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Economic times have been tough for a lot of Americans, and people have been sort of casting about for little side hustles to increase their income there's an interesting one that we were talking about earlier there was an article about it i guess it's a trend it's sort of controversial at least within our team is this something you would consider doing for some extra cash we will explain right after this on the guy benson show
3: guy benson will be right back
0: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. It is Friday Eve here on the program. Glad to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day. It's on demand. It's right there. Very easy. GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcast.com. Or wherever you get your podcasts. You know what? I saw this story. It was in the Washington Post. And I guess it was also in CNBC. Talking about a side hustle like a side gig, that is generating quite a lot of revenue for some people. And when I first saw the headline, it sparked and jogged a memory. I'm like, I could have sworn I saw this idea pitched on that show Shark Tank, which I really like. Shark Tank on ABC. We've got the five investors and people coming and pitch their ideas, their business proposals, seeking an investment. Then the five sharks, the investors, if they like the idea, they'll make offers. Sometimes they compete with each other if they really like it. And I think it's a really good show about entrepreneurship. I've tangled a little bit with Mark Cuban on Twitter. That's been fun. Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary in the middle seat, he's a conservative. He's Canadian, very conservative. And some of the other people who invest, sometimes they bring in big celebrities or guest investors. I just think it's great. I think it's highly entertaining content. So I'll watch it from time to time. And sometimes I've actually found myself buying products off of Shark Tank. Like a handful of times. One that I think was a really good one that I bought, by the way, which I should use a lot more, is called Phone Soap. They're not an advertiser on the show, I'm just saying. It's this little, like, ultraviolet coffin that you put your phone in. And the technology basically eliminates... Almost all of the germs and grime and disgustingness that ends up on your phone over the course of the day and just – you bring your phone everywhere. You don't really think about it, but you're putting it down in public places. It made me think during the presentation, oh, yeah, that's really gross. I need that product to clean my phone on a regular basis because I wash my hands a lot. And you wouldn't have your hands touching a bunch of gross stuff and then put it right near your face all the time. And yet we do that without even thinking twice with our mobile devices frequently so we ordered one and I don't use it as much as I should we should leave it out somewhere more visible to remind ourselves to do it because I think it's actually a a really good product that's taken off last time I checked at least they were very successful we got something for Roy some sort of dog food enhancement product that will make your pet eat their food more readily because Roy's a bit of a picky eater sometimes that had mixed results Perhaps because we feed him little pieces of steak and chicken, and so he's really spoiled. So what would be wildly popular with another dog, Roy just turns his nose up like it's not enough for him. So that's probably our own fault. Anyway, I watched the show. It's entertaining. It is definitely entrepreneurial in its spirit. Some people incite basically a feeding frenzy to invest in a company that's going to take off, and sometimes – these businesses get sold for many millions, huge profits for everyone. I think one of the most successful ones they ever had is something called a Squatty Potty, which I'm not even exactly clear what it does, but it gets referenced a lot as one of the big, you have a Squatty Potty, I Christina. had
1: one. Bobby threw it out in the move, but I loved my Squatty Potty.
0: Did you get it because of Shark Tank or did, was it on your social media feed? How were you introduced to the Squatty Potty?
1: Wasn't that the commercial with the... Uh Unicorn that, you know, puts I out don't, colorful.
0: I don't know. I <laughs> don't know. I think it definitely involves going to the bathroom and making that process easier for people. It's like a little step stool or something. I don't know. All I know is I think that was a Lori investment and it did extremely well and they all made tons and tons of money. So you never know when one of these is going to completely take off. Sometimes businesses that get rejected on Shark Tank, no one wants to invest, none of the five. Those businesses get a lot of publicity being on the show, and then they succeed anyway. I think Ring Doorbells, for example, a lot of people have that feature with the little camera, and it records and all of that, very popular. That guy came on Shark Tank, if memory serves, pitched it, got rejected and shut down, and then was so successful in his business that they brought him back eventually as a guest investor because he made so much money. So it's that type of thing that keeps me coming back. I'm not a religious regular viewer every time there's a new episode on ABC, but I do enjoy watching it, and sometimes I'll set my DVR. Here's another business, coming back to how we started this segment from The Washington Post and the CNBC, this story, a business that did not get an investor on Shark Tank. It got the shaft. It got the stiff arm from all five of the investors on that episode. It was an app called Swimply, it's an app kind of like Airbnb, which connects people who have swimming pools at their home with people who want to use a swimming pool. So if you're a homeowner, you've got a pool in the backyard, you want to make some extra cash, you can basically just rent out your pool. You put it up there. There's a profile. And just like an Airbnb where someone would come and stay at a property – You're not living there, but you can, let's say, for an afternoon in the summer, rent the pool like it's yours. And there are rules, and I'm sure there are insurance policies or whatever, I would imagine, given some of the liabilities here. And then you let people use your pool. You take the cash. And then if you're on the consumer side, let's say you're a parent. Your kid wants to have a pool party. It's hot out there. You don't live in a place with a pool. You don't belong to some sort of membership or a club or whatever. You want to maybe have something a little bit more private. You can go on the app and just swipe through and say, that's near me. That looks like a nice pool. That's a reasonable price. I'm going to book it. So it's called Swimply. And I remember watching this episode and the sharks were making a lot of points like the liability on insurance. What if someone, God forbid, were to drown or slip or something? Could there be a big problem for the homeowner? Would this scale? on the type of level nationally that would make this an investable business? Would people really want to do this with some sort of critical mass demand? And I thought actually the skepticism of the sharks was warranted. I was sort of dubious of the whole thing as well. I would not have invested, not like I have money to plow into this stuff. I'm not a multi-gazillionaire like they all are. But it turns out that Swimply, the app, is actually doing rather well. Here's the story from today, the CNBC version. When Jim Batten spent $110,000 building a luxury pool outside his home in Oregon a decade ago, he knew he was making an investment. He couldn't have known that 10 years later, he'd earn more than that, enough to pay the whole thing off by renting it out to strangers on the Internet. Batten says that since 2020, His pool has hosted roughly 9,000 swimmers using a platform called Swimply, which dubs itself, here you go, the Airbnb of swimming pools. The result, according to documents reviewed by CNBC, is $177,000 in revenue in less than two years. He says, I love to say that the pool has paid for itself and more, $177,000 in pool rentals. In two years. I am blown away by that. And there's other examples. The Washington Post headline yesterday, heaven is renting someone else's pool. You too can borrow a dream and adopt a stranger's backyard lifestyle an hour or two at a time. And there's a long story about it. $68 an hour, sometimes more on the weekends for one person that they're profiling. And people are making hundreds of bucks, thousands of bucks, upgrading their pool experience so they can make more money. I do find it sort of fascinating in the current economy where people have this ability to sort of get anything on an app on demand. I'm not surprised that this was at least conceived of. And maybe in retrospect. I shouldn't be surprised that this has been a success. But the question that I have and I'll put it out to the team here, is let's say you had a pool. Let's say you put a pool in your backyard. It costs a lot. I think there's a huge backlog right now, even to get them dug and constructed and everything. Then there's maintenance. Your insurance premiums certainly go way up. There's a lot of costs associated with it, a lot of headaches associated with it. Would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to rent it to strangers? Kind of as a way to make and recoup some of that money back because people sometimes buy second homes in a vacation location and they can't fully afford it. So they rent it out for a number of weeks or months a year, helps pay the mortgage. It's not an unusual business model. It just I've never heard of it until recently on swimming pools. And it seemed like, Christine, you like a whole bunch of different weird schemes to make money. You're willing to embrace almost anything. You've got a new one virtually every day, it feels like. Are you thinking about when you get a new house, because you're in the apartment right now, part of another scheme, if you get to a new house, would you be looking for one with a pool, maybe put in a pool, so you too could host a Swimpley property and make potentially lots and lots of money?
1: You know something, actually? I was kind of saying in the meeting, I don't think that this is something that I would be into, but on second thought, yes, yes. Um, my next house definitely is going to have a pool, although Bobby said we're definitely not going to have a pool. So obviously we're going to have the pool. And why not? When we're away on the weekends and we're away like, you know, for a week at a time, why not just make some money and let people use the pool?
0: Did the one hundred and seventy-seven grand from this one guy in Oregon perhaps persuade you? that help change your mind?
1: So when we had spoken earlier, I had not read that story.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're like, okay, that's a big chunk of change. Wyatt, you're shaking
5: your head. I'm just envisioning a $177,000 legal bill being sued because I think that this is a liability issue. And I mean, I was fortunate to grow up with a pool, in-ground pool. So, I mean, I I just don't understand how you could have a bunch of people coming in and out of your property. It just doesn't seem safe. It doesn't seem like a good idea.
0: See, I feel like the insurance piece must be dealt with. And if this whole app is working and this platform is working the way that it is. Obviously, that's not the first time that anyone has brought up that concern. I think they've probably got that locked down. It's more just, to me, the creepiness of having strangers parading in and out of your property on a regular basis, swimming in your pool. I know it's chlorinated and all that, but just all these sort of strangers' bodies in the water that is for you and your family and friends. I don't know. It's just that is the part that I can't get over. But I will say the revenue kind of does speak for itself. And sometimes you just want to swim in a pool. I had that feeling sometimes. I don't know anyone with a pool around me. My old building used to have one. I can't go to that. So I could get the desire to engage in this. I'm just not sure I'd want to be the one as the host. And we have no room for a pool anyway. So it's a totally academic conversation, at least for now. Dan, yes or no, real quick. Gross, no. Okay, so it's uh, three to one no with Christine. It was four nothing, but Christine has moved. She's migrated. And I might consider being a client. If you've got kids, they really want to go to a pool. You can see there's good reviews from a lot of people, right? You know, it's clean and safe and in a good neighborhood and all that. I, I would consider it. I just wouldn't want to host All right, we got to run. Back here tomorrow for the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Always appreciate you listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Same time, same place as usual. We will talk to you then. Good night.